Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Kleinman. All right, welcome back. We are joined by Steve Tulliners of Fountain Valley School. And we are going to talk not just coaching today, but athletic administration. So coach, thank you for uh, joining us. Really excited to have you here and uh, looking forward to having a great conversation. Likewise, Justin, I appreciate you inviting me on and, and allowing me to offer any, uh, any advice I can. Fantastic. Why don't you do, take us through your background as a coach. How did you get into it? What was the process of you landing your first head coaching gig and any subsequent jobs? And I know between us that you're just starting a new job. So if you just take us through your background of how you ended up getting into the profession to begin with. Yeah, it it meanders and turns like many of our stories. And I think the best place to start is my playing career. I grew up playing basketball, soccer, and lacrosse. Decided in, in high school that basketball was my ticket. I think mostly culturally, I identified with basketball at a pretty high level, which is funny being where coming from where I came from, which is a small, a small school, small town outside of Philadelphia. But always, I grew up, my dad was a little bit of a basketball nerd that we never played, watching the Sixers, watching MJ uh, back in the day. I missed uh, the Magic Bird uh, just because of my age uh, rivalry, but I was an MJ uh, disciple and so had the posters and had everything. And I think that kind of guided and crafted uh, a lot of my hopes and dreams as a kid. And like many, like many young players, wanted to play in the NBA one day. Had no idea now uh, that I sit here at 37 years old what that took, that going out and shooting in my backyard was not going to get it done. I didn't have the talent that I had. Maybe I had the talent, but not necessarily the work ethic back then, which I think has uh, guided a lot of what we'll talk about later in terms of uh, my coaching philosophy. So long story short is uh, I had a pretty successful career in high school. I went on to uh, play at Temple University for two years. I hold that, that loosely, that term play, as I rode the bench for uh, a top five <laughs> team in the country behind uh, a McDonald's All-American and Lynn Greer. And then subsequently, an unheard of freshman guard named Marty Collins, who came in and lit the world on fire and ended mm-hmm. up being, having a pretty long career in the NBA and now uh, still playing in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing the writing on the wall, I decided to transfer. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's an interesting part of my journey as I look back and I think about would I transfer today? I'm not sure. Some mm-hmm. of my lifelong friendships remain with those guys at Temple and I love my subsequent school, which was Colorado State. And also some of the connections made there helped me, uh, helped me land where I am today. But I think there's some value in, in sticking something out. And I think there are times when a transfer is necessary. But looking back on my story, it's not a regret, but something I do think about. So I landed at Colorado State of all places from North Broad Street and Temple University and I had a redshirt year there and towards the end of that year there I had a pretty catastrophic ankle injury. So I will blame my lack of MBA career on that injury but let's not get it confused that was not in the cards for me though I thought it at the time and in a lot of ways that ankle injury set me down a path of self-discovery that was pretty rocky at, at the beginning and I, so I ended up leaving school. I returned after my redshirt year for my senior year and ended up leaving school, really um, having no understanding of what uh, I was going to do. Uh, basketball had really been my identity and, and defined who I was. I wasn't a, a well-rounded person whatsoever. 
and was really in a dark place, having lost the thing that was really important to me and lost my dream though, however irrational it was, lost my dream. And I got really lucky. I called Coach Cheney, who was my first, my first coach at Temple University, said, hey, I'm back. And after a good talking to, and I'll, and I'll spare some of the language that was used, uh, <laughs> after a good talking to, he reached out uh, to all the people that he knew and, and landed me a internship uh, in the communications department with the 76ers. I had re-injured, so this is pretty important to the story, I had re-injured my ankle, so I show up on crutches for my first day in community relations. No idea what I'm doing. I don't have any idea what community relations are. And the Sixers practice facility, which is offsite at the time, was offsite, called PECOM, was under construction. So we were in the bowels of the Wells Fargo Center, as it was named at the time. And I got super lucky, like most of us do, and landed a cubicle next to Billy King, the general manager. If you, if anybody listen knows anything about Billy King, he is a super connector. He is an amazing human being that is interested in people's stories. He's interested in promoting people. He is just a fantastic person. So it wasn't 12 hours into my working, my working life there that Billy said, man, why, why are you here? Why are you on crutches? And, and I told him the story. He said, why are you in community relations? I said, it's all I got right now, <laughs> Mr. King. And, and he said, you should be in basketball operations. When your internship, when your internship's finished, man, you give me a call. And I'm like, great, it's done, right? Have a great, have a great summer in that internship. And, and being a man of his word, I called him up and he put me right into basketball ops. So I moved up the street, what I would say is September 1st, and dove right into the world of supporting all of our staff at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so I was really, uh, my primary role was to manage our data and recruiting base for the upcoming drafts. I worked with our advanced scout. I worked with our college scouts uh, to aggregate all the information they were getting. And I was, I was no older than 22 or 23 years old at the time. So what an experience. I'm, I'm, I'm downstairs watching practice during the day. I'm upstairs watching video, watching DVDs, because at the time we didn't have, uh, there was no streaming, there was no digital, it was all DVDs that I was going back and forth and picking up. And man, I just learned, I learned a ton. Courtney Whitty, who's longtime advanced scout and longtime collegiate scout, director of scouting for a lot of different teams, really took me under his wing. Great guy, played in Indiana, taught me a lot about that business. And I think one of the most important things he, he, he said was be prepared for change because it's coming. And he was prophetic because it rolled down the pipeline about 16 months later and our whole front office got fired. So again, after that great experience, I'm sitting there like, now what? Billy being a great guy, looked for a job for me and found one as a assistant video coordinator, I think was the title. Mm-hmm. And it made all of 16 grand. It was with the Clippers. And he said, this is what I got for you. And I said, like, I, I'm not asking for a lot, but I don't think I can eat on 16 grand. And and, right. um, and I, if I were to offer myself some criticism, my younger self some criticism, I would say it was a time where I should have been sleeping on the couch. Mm-hmm. I should have been sleeping in the office. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I know there's people that did that. One of uh, what some of my colleagues or that I would call them when I was working in the front office at the Sixers, they were in the video departments, which is a level above where I was. And some of those guys are head coaches mm-hmm. now in the league, one of them specifically being Spo mm-hmm. for the Heat. And I know that guy was sleeping on the couch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, I think there's an, opp- there's an opportunity to learn from that for some people, mm-hmm. but I didn't take that. And I decided to get uh, what I I'll call a real job, 
and I uh, started working retail back in Pennsylvania, moved back in with my mom. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I really didn't have any idea what was going on. As I moved back in with my mom, I got a call from my, my former coach in high school who said, hey, our, our ninth grade coach just quit. Our mm. freshman coach just quit. And this was maybe a week before the season started. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. said, would you be interested? I said, heck yeah, I'd love to do it. Never mm -hmm. coached a day. How hard could it be to coach freshman basketball? Man, we weren't very good. And I realized pretty quickly, it's really hard. And, and I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew how to translate all the information that I had uh, downloaded through playing for a Hall of Fame coach and working in, in the NBA. And I realized that transferring that information to 14-year-olds was incredibly difficult. And, 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 and honestly, 14-year-olds, that weren't very good. And they didn't have skills to, to understand the, the things that I was trying to teach them and then to then do them on the court, actually execute them on the court. Nonetheless, I stayed in that role for two years. I was my first head coach. In that time, I was assisting with the varsity, probably the JV as well. I don't really remember. And got really lucky, like we do, like the rest of my story is defined by some good luck. And mm -hmm. we had the, what I call the second best player behind me in school history, though he is far better than me. But we still have this running joke. I named Kevin Hubdy, who's actually associate head coach out in San Francisco right now. Mm -hmm. And he's just a world-class player. World-class mind, really bright. Down, just took every nugget of information you would give it to him and translate it to the floor. We had incredible runs in the districts and state playoffs and mm -hmm. upset a bunch of people and gain some recognition. So in that mm -hmm. time, through a friend of a friend, and this is the next part and probably the, more, the most crucial part of the story, a guy named Seth Berger, who was the assistant coach at a school called Westtown School, which is down the street, got my name, had never met him before, said, hey man, I've been the assistant coach at this school, I think we could build a program here. And, and this was the earlier days of prep basketball, mm -hmm. right? This is 12, 13 years ago now. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was still some momentum behind public school out on the East Coast and, mm -hmm. and doing that thing. And, uh, and certainly not in the boarding school market. And, and I said, great, I'd love to talk about it. And I uh, didn't know anything about him, had no clue who he was, and, uh, and showed up into this tiny little gym at this tiny little boarding school that was 15 miles down the road that I'd never been to. And uh, we sat on the bleachers and talked about hoops for, for 20 minutes. And I, I came home saying, man, I think this is a guy that I could work with. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was the head coach. It, their coach had been leaving and he'd been assigned the task to, to be the head coach the next season. And we partnered in, and, and decided that we were going to build what is now Westtown Basketball. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in the prep world are, are, are familiar with now. Mm -hmm. uh, we was, I was there with him as associate head coach for, gosh, 10 years with a one-year, actually 11 years with a one-year gap where I decided to go to Liberty University and work as the director of operations of basketball at Liberty University, assistant director of basketball operations for my, co my former coach, at Colorado State, Dale Lair. What an experience. I think a lot of us think about college coaching. Uh, a lot of us uh, think about MBA coaching. And if, you're, if you've got your eyes open and your ears and you're listening to what the life is, and I, th I think something I'd always talked about with my wife was, what, is, what does it actually look like? What does it actually look like? And, and it was this itch that we needed to scratch. We went down there got lucky man and uh, and our program went on a, went on a heck of a run we won six mm -hmm. games in the regular season and then mm -hmm. won our conference tournament we had to win <laughs> we had to win five games in our conference tournament got an NCAA bid went to the <laughs> went to the NCAA tournament first time mm -hmm. uh, second time in school history and so it was just an incredible opportunity to work through 
hardship throughout the year and, and continue to try to keep guys motivated at a very low level in terms of the pecking order of the staff. But being one of those guys that was able to be relational because I wasn't the one that was holding them accountable every day, I was in that sense. And to watch them hold on and ultimately position themselves to make that run was really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so did that, decided that as I had three young kids, that pursuing college basketball was just gonna, it was just gonna wear me out, uh, <laughs> you know? And, and, and God bless the guys that can do that and balance that. But mm -hmm. um, I think being successful in this industry is knowing, is knowing your why and knowing mm -hmm. how you can execute that. And so my wife and I made a, a collective decision that we weren't gonna do that. And, and we decided to go back to Westtown School where I coached for another five years after that. And really were that program where we where we started to take off. Was super lucky, got to be involved with a number of guys who have since matriculated to the NBA, won a whole bunch of games, learned a whole lot. And and was a lot of people I think confuse you as a high school basketball coach, especially when you have some degree of success, is that's your job. That wasn't mm -hmm. my job, right? That's another <laughs> job on top of my real job, which was actually an admission director, assistant right. associate admission director at Westtown School. So in that, in my eight to nine hour actual work day, uh, mm -hmm. I'm constantly thinking about what's next for me. Is this what I want to do? And not having a desire to be a director of admission and, and being really close and having such a fantastic experience with our direct athletic directors at, uh, at Westtown School and having been supported and championed by them. There became some internal momentum in my, in, in my mind that this could be a fit for me. Mm -hmm. That's some of the things that I've learned about coaching. I'd love to be able to share. I'd be, I'd love to be able to help craft theories as to how to promote and champion young people, not having to own every single aspect of it. Right. Right. Um, so it is, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to be uh, appointed the athletic director at, at Fountain Valley School. I'm about a month and a half into the most non-traditional season that I think any of us have ever had. So all those ideas and aspirations that I had about helping coaches and, and partnering and and X and an Owen and this and that has been squashed mm -hmm. by really just reorganizing our entire after-school activities program in the last month and a half, which has been a, a unique challenge and, and something that I've learned a great deal from already. But I think that's the very long version uh, of my of, of how I'm sitting in front of you. Well, I love it. That's great. And it actually allows for a million different ways we can go. But, you know, what I was thinking while I was listening to you is, how you framed initially, right? You got your start basically in the NBA. Now, not necessarily on the floor coaching, but around it enough and watching it enough. And then having to go from there to, as you mentioned, ninth grade basketball and trying to apply that and how hard that was to translate this advanced knowledge of the game to this kind of entry level point. And then the success you were able to have at West Town and, and your other high school, your, your alma mater. If you can reflect now and go back and you're dropping into a new head coaching job or forget that in this role, you're dropping in year one as the athletic director with really no background in athletic administration, but you have a lot of background in coaching, organizational leadership, things like that. If you could go back and think about like, what did, what did you still need to figure out when you became that ninth grade head coach? that you can now tap into as you go into this role and, and thinking about the things that you still needed to learn? Yeah. Um, gosh, that's such a good question. And, and, and I think the, the, the obvious answer is it's not about me. I think ego drives so many people in our industry, meaning the athletic industry, defined by wins, defined by in the basketball world, people that they've coached that are that have some level of recognition, 
And if that, if, if those results, which, which when I started defined me and, and those desired results defined me, it, it certainly manipulates your ability to effectively champion, I'll continue to use this word, champion young people. Because not everybody, almost very few of us are gonna have that opportunity to interact with that superstar athlete. The vast majority of our experiences are gonna be with kids that are just playing for fun or kids that are never gonna play beyond JV or varsity basketball again in the in galactic in world. And, and I think those, the ability to table my own desires, my own aspirations, how I qualify my identity as a coach, as a leader, were crucial, right? When I stepped onto that floor as a freshman coach, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I wanted to go 13 and we probably played 13 games, right? I wanted to go 13 and 0 so I could get the next job and get the next job. What I needed to learn was how do I connect? How do I connect with kids? How do I form a unit? How do I effectively um, communicate the goals that I have to the leaders of that program so that they can effectively grow in their capabilities or of that team, sorry, so they can effectively grow in their capabilities and lead kids on, on their team at 14 years old. And then that just continues to grow when you think about going through the JV and then the varsity level. And I think about that when I'm here, Justin, is I'd be lying if I said, I don't want to come in and try to try to partner with three or four head coaches so that we're pursuing state championships in three or four years. Do we need to have goals? Absolutely. Do they need to be clearly defined? Absolutely. But I've, I need to be very careful about my ego defining my goals versus my hopes and dreams and understanding of the goals of the people that I'm working with, whether that be kids on a basketball team, my kids at my kid's age at 10 years old on a soccer field or uh, on a freshman basketball team, as we had mentioned earlier, now with, with my colleagues that are coaching tennis or coaching, mm-hmm. well, which I know nothing about, but how do I transfer my experiences and my knowledge to them uh, to, to encourage them to build program without having to kind of create uh, undesired pressures? And I think that has been a consistent challenge for myself personally one that I've wanted to, uh, that I, I probably didn't become aware of until I left Liberty. So arguably until I'm 32 years old, uh, it's all about me. Uh, it's all about me. Uh, and it's been a really interesting and historically for me, if I look at my career, being at Westtown for five years, having a year break of which I had no authority, where I had all of this agency and authority to make decisions and to help guide and steward a program to basically having nothing, right? To just right. doing the task at hand, to then coming back and being able to reflect on how I could improve and, and help improve our program. I think was a big deal, but I'll continue to go back to that, getting outside of myself and, and tabling those, those selfish desires has been something that has been, that I think would be crucial. I would have loved to have had that knowledge and I'm sure I did to some degree, but been able to expedite that process when I was younger. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So as you transition here and you talk about learning how to encourage, how to set you know, goals, but not make them about you, make them about growing youth and championing the young people and what they're able to accomplish. The thing that popped into my head as you were describing that in this transition, right, from Westtown, which is an East Coast prep school, to Fountain Valley, which is in Colorado, from Liberty, which is a collegiate place where you're recruiting athletes to, you know, I don't know what the situation is in Colorado, but ultimately, like, how do you define for yourself in this transition coming from one place to a new place What's now mission appropriate at Fountain Valley versus yeah. 
versus where you have been and learning that. And how do you go about figuring that out? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, there's two ways, right? We can demand that our, our philosophies and our ethos be adapted by our program, or we can learn and in a spirit of collaboration, craft mission appropriate for our schools because they're so individual in that sense mm-hmm. and, and certainly programs and, and, and higher level ed is as well and understand what the mission is to create vision for the future for for me and something actually my wife who was a, a former athlete as well was challenging me with the other night in a conversation was excellence transfers at all levels mm-hmm. and and the misconception is that excellence means is shown shown in the wins and losses column and I think there is probably some degree of that, that's some degree of truth to that. But I think that excellence as it is applied to being an athletic administration, uh, being a coach or being a teacher is something that I would like to carry and that I've, I've presented to our department here and to our coaches here. And that for us specifically means being detail-oriented, being maniacally detail-oriented, something that in my earlier life I struggled with, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking that my talent, because I have my ego, would carry the day. That because of the things that I had experienced, that I would be able to walk into a ninth grade gym and just transfer all this knowledge without knowing that I needed to watch all those DVDs. (laughs) I needed to have uh, baseline out-of-bounds plays. I needed to have end-of-game plays and, and have a library of them. And I ignored all that in my first year. Um, so as I think about excellence, I think it transfers far beyond our experience. And I think so many of us lean on our experience, which is really positive and it, and it contributes to who we are. But the craft is defined by how we work towards it. And, and, and for me, excellence, I don't know if it's achievable in, in that sense, but it is certainly something that I would like our department or that I hope and I have presented our department as a goal that, to, to work for. It was something that we spoke about often at Westtown, small details, right? Every day in practice, we were doing really basic fundamental drills. And by the end of the year, you know, new kids would come in and say, this is ridiculous. Why do I have to, why do I have to go through this fundamental drill every day? At the end of the year, when we're running away from teams, because we are more fundamentally sound and more disciplined because we've been pursuing excellence in that craft, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll realize that. So I, I think in short, it is, it's in a spirit of collaboration. It's mm-hmm. not coming in with your agenda and mm-hmm. saying, this is what I want. And I think in certain regards that, of course, we're, we're hired as leaders, as, as head coaches and as athletic administrators, if you will, to bring some of that. But who am I if I don't learn about the history of the school? Who am I if I don't learn about the spirit of the school to say that this is the way that it's going to be and, right. and, and move forward? But I think excellence is my final answer in that it is transferable. And it mm-hmm. is something that no matter the culture of the school can be pursued. Great. Uh, so the, to that point, and, and you're not in a, in a position for this, trying to think about how to ask this, when we do leave places, there are things, you're saying excellence is transferable, right? There are other things that may fit certain programs, may not, right? When we used to go to clinics and, and see drills and be like, oh, this is great, but then it doesn't really fit what you do as a program. You try to shoehorn it in there and you end up throwing it out anyway. And, and in this case, what can you bring with you uh, programmatically, systematically that is applicable at Fountain Valley, right? Will remain to be seen. But I want to I dig into your coaching career and the things that you learned over those years. And even as you go into this administration piece, and if you were to reflect and be like, you know, what's the best thing that you 
guys did as a coaching staff that made, you know, transcendent difference and had a huge ripple effect in your team or your culture that will travel with you, regardless of mission appropriate, because it is, uh, transcends that. What doesn't matter what school you're at. What, do you have one of those? That's, this is something that is a keystone. Yeah, and I think their philosophies and having the luxury. So a little bit of background at, at Westtown. When we started the program the year before, I think the program had made, they, they had won less than five games. So we were effectively starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we had the ability to, there had always been a basketball program, but to build culture um, and to define who we were as a program was something that we were cognizant of. And I think because Seth and I, listen, one of my, I say this in humility, but one of my strengths is interpersonal connection. And one of the things that we learned over the first five years is we were effectively too close to the kids. There was a gray that we operated in where because of some of the kids' circumstances in their lives, we were big brother, we were mentor, we were uncle, we were father figure, and we were also coach. And that became really confusing to some kids when we had to draw hard lines uh, in mm-hmm. the thing that was most important to them, which was basketball. Um, so though their needs still existed outside of the program, still needing mm-hmm. some, some kids, still needing large degrees of mentorship and presence in their lives, which we wanted to serve all while trying to balance getting them better and developing them on the court and being able to have conversations with 17 year olds that are extremely emotional mm-hmm. that hold on to every word. And, and I think a, a pivot point for us, that's not necessarily was this kind of aha moment, but it was a, mm-hmm. just a learning experience over time was defining expectations from day mm-hmm. one. I think as you build a program, there's this, there, we can all probably agree on, there's this, I got to get kids in here. I, gotta, I can't have a program if I can't get kids here. So we all make concessions in the things that we say. Mm-hmm. And as we started to move down that line, what we started to realize, I think, was not that we were lying to kids whatsoever, but mm-hmm. we, were, we were crafting a perfect picture, which we weren't, nobody's operating in a perfect environment. So mm-hmm. one of the things that was really impactful for us was being laser focused on mm-hmm. our expectations with mm-hmm. kids, with parents, with their coaches, anybody that was involved in that circle. Uh, as an example, we have a kid who is there now who's just committed to Florida State. When he came in, was pretty highly heralded as, a, as an eighth grader, whatever that means. And that uh, was coming from a peer school in our area. And we were really clear with him that you're not going to mm-hmm. play freshman year. You're not good mm-hmm. enough play freshman mm-hmm. year okay mm-hmm. you know i said no and uh and my partner seth said your job is to clap and to encourage everybody mm-hmm. freshman year from the bench and uh, and as we encountered times where he was frustrated freshman year because he wasn't playing we went back to that moment with his parents mm-hmm. to say you're mm-hmm. not coming here to contribute as a freshman you're coming here to contribute as a sophomore start mm-hmm. as a junior be our leader and our captain and our superstar as a senior that is mm-hmm. your player pathway uh mm-hmm. here and in years past, we couldn't lean on that conversation because we never had it. Mm-hmm. So I think as we grew in, in kind of the general awareness of people understanding our program and, and more people were inquiring about our program, we were able to have that conversation. And mm-hmm. for some kids, that was, no, you're not, you just don't fit. And, and But let's, because of our connections and our network, let's try to help you find the right program that fits. So I think that was number one. Number two, and this was a big moment, um, we had three kids, Cameron Reddish, Muhammad Bamba, and Brandon Randolph on, on the same team. So three NBA prospects, right? <laughs> two, two ultimate top 10 draft picks who are currently in the NBA and Brandon's in the G League. 
And then that year we had eight division one players. So we were coming off the bench with three division one players, total abnormality. Normally we'll right. have three to four, which is a fantastic, right? We're a fantastic stable of athletes. And this year we have eight. So uh, the, the most difficult task that year, look, we could roll the balls out and win mm-hmm. 90% of our game. They don't need us. They're just that talented. But how do we assist in their development so that they're ready, not even for the college level, but so that they're mm-hmm. ready for 18 months out, they're going to be the NBA. Right. Um, and no fault of their own, adolescents who have mm-hmm. half a million Instagram followers, ego was through the roof. Yep. And, and I need mine. And they got people in their ears telling them what they need. And we were very intentional. This was Mo's senior year, Cameron's junior year, about what our team standard and what our team philosophy was going to be. And we would examine mm-hmm. this at the beginning of every year. We didn't have a consistent theme, but this one has stuck and is still the, what I would argue will be the theme of Westtown basketball in perpetuity, which is this slogan, I am for you. We had it printed on the back of shirts. We gave it to them at the beginning of the year and broke this down as to what it would mean. Mm-hmm. Um, sacrifice your own your own goals, your own aspirations. Muhammad Obama could have scored 30 points a game if he wanted. We didn't need Mo to score 30 points a game. We didn't need Cameron to score 30 points a game. Ultimately, what had ended up happening was Brandon Randolph ended up scoring 26 points a game. Cameron ended up being a point guard, which better helped him or helped him better facilitate his future. And Mm -hmm. Mo became a more effective jump shooter because we needed to space the floor. Mm -hmm. And that philosophy, that tagline, Mm -hmm. I am for you, it really became a war cry for our guys that year, um, mm-hmm. which I'm really nervous. To be totally honest, given that to five-star athletes, they're like, whatever. You know, <laughs> if I know where I'm going, but they bought in. They bought, it bought, they bought in from the first guy to the 12th guy. And when we had moments where we were bickering, where we were arguing because mm-hmm. we'd been with each other for 20 days straight and through a number of hard games, we kept coming back to that. And we had guys reflect on, that specific phrase, I am for you, guiding them in moments where they didn't want to do it anymore, where they wanted mm-hmm. to quit. Right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really powerful for some kids and, and totally unexpected. I was like, man, we're going to have to hammer this. It's going to be a top-down coach thing. But they bought in and it, and it has translated into a, a philosophy for, for that team that still stands. And then the small one that I think was equally as impactful, but we haven't been as consistent with, which was... I'm sure most basketball guys have read the article about Steve Nash and the frequency of, as to which he touches other people on the floor. Sitting in a preseason, uh, it, in our fall preseason training, I was watching some guys and they were just isolated. Doing the thing, mm-hmm. they're working hard, but they're just isolated. After they mm-hmm. do something, they're not coming to touch each other, they're not talking. And as, a, as an athlete, I think we're all physical human beings. Some of us are mm-hmm. more touching than others. As a coach, I'm all over the place. And, and so we handed out that article, Steve Nash guy, and we talked about that. And we developed a small phrase called touch up, which is obviously commonly used. After every single stop, we would holler touch I mean, I probably hollered touch up more <laughs> than I did anything else. And our guys would do it, even when they're mad at each other. Even though they come up and give, maybe give a little bit extra on that <laughs> Um, but, but that connection point drew them into each other and, and it eliminated that isolation tactic that, that protected them when they were angry and further connected our, and further as a result connected our team. So I think those three things specifically, and then the two things are the one, the two things being, I am for you and touch up. I think are if I were to ever step back into a head coaching role, those would be mm-hmm. one of my, in levels of importance. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because none of that had anything to do with basketball. 
And uh, it's, I think, where it takes us to next in regards to your own transition into this role. How do you take those concepts, which in theory, you know, are used on a basketball court, but are not about basketball. And how do you, now as you're overseeing programs for multiple sports, right, instill those or offer ideas like that people can adopt. And that's something that ultimately, right, you got to figure out. Um, but uh, the thing that I would now ask, because it sounds, again, what, what your evolution as a coach didn't have a ton to do, especially in the late stages with the basketball per se, but relationships, cultivating ego. You had eight Division One players on, the, on that team. And my most talented team, we had eight, nine college basketball players on the team, not Division One guys. But ultimately, I always said my most difficult job was just managing ego. It wasn't even about the basketball. You just roll the balls out when you have that much talent, air quotes. But I guess if you could capture, right, as we wrap things up here, how has your approach changed, right, from day one till now of coaching, of managing, of leading? And if you were starting over today, what would you do differently? What advice would you have for that 22-year-old, that 23-year-old going into that room thinking, all right, I got this. Let's go. We're going to go 13 and 0. Like, yeah. how would you capture that in a soundbite and be like, this is what I would tell that person so that they could hit the ground running? I think I had a different answer for this before you asked it. But as I'm sitting here, what keeps coming to mind is know your lane. One of the reasons I think I was so, we were so successful at West Town was Seth effectively allowed me to operate as a head coach. His ego was such that he wasn't threatened by me. And I think about a lot of the hierarchy of head coaching, the hierarchy of administration, in, in which there's so much ownership tied into that title. And I think some of it is necessary. But as I craft, as if I were to be charged with crafting a coaching staff for a team right now, I'm not the best X's and O guy in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I, I know that about myself. So I know very clearly that I'm going to need a savant to sit on the bench and tell me exactly what I need to do in what situations. And of course I need to be knowledgeable. Of course I need to be able to communicate that effectively. I can't be blind to all of that, but I need to be able to understand and empower my staff, whether that is I'm the head coach and I'm the, and I'm the detail guy, I'm the X's and O guy. Um, then I need to have and empower my staff to be interpersonal, to have the relate and not be threatened by that because I think that's woven into our relationships and the insecurities that we carry into our professions often. But I would be super clear about that from day one. And I think that is arguably the thing that I learned from my mentor, Seth, who I've coached with for arguably 12 years and is my best friend to this day. It takes a great deal of humility to not have to own every piece of it. And of course, even in his empowering of me, we still butted heads because we're competitive by nature and we were mm-hmm. great friends and we're spending a lot of time together. And even in those situations, being able to say, no, I know this, we're doing this for the good of the cause. We're doing this for the development of the kids. We're doing this for all the things that we've outlined and, and why ultimately we've partnered. But I think, man, so many people want to do it on their own. They, they want to hold every, they want to be able to hold the, the, the execution of a, a out of bounds set with the management of relationships. And I, and it is my opinion and I hold this solely that you can't do it all. Mm-hmm. And those that do it really well, I think about when the NBA world pop and, and Steve Kerr, this pod, if you've listened to their pods and some of their management style that they've mm-hmm. talked about, I'm like, 
man, it's, they have an incredible ability to delegate, right? Mm. They have an incredible ability to delegate and to champion those people. And I think the mark, I really do. I'll finish by saying this. I think a mark of a fantastic coach is not how many state championships you've won, not how many games or how many players you've matriculated to the college or the pro level, but how many head coaches come from your tree. Mm. And I know that's complicated in certain scenarios, but how many people are you, how many assistants are you championing? How many, cause it's not, we're not just coaching kids. We're coaching our staff as well as head coaches, as administrators in our role. How many people have come under our tutelage as assistant athletic directors that we're championing to be athletic directors, if that's mm-hmm. their goal. And, and this seems to be said about assistant coaches on, on your staff. And I think if you mm-hmm. go in with that mindset, then ultimately you're going to draw, ultimately you're going to draw people. And, mm-hmm. and I, I do, I believe that is the mark of a fantastic coach. How many people are doing that beyond you? How big is your tree? Mm-hmm. Love that. Love that answer. And it, and it sounds as you transition into that role, that's something that can translate. How do you delegate, right? How do you empower? How do you lead and support people and know that you're not the expert in a particular area, but they are and set them loose with confidence. And I think that's really going to serve you as you step into this role of the athletic director. Coach, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think there's a lot of value that was able to come out of that in your experience is over the years and that your background and what you've been able to accomplish will really be able to give some people some ideas. So thanks for taking the time. And definitely we'll have to circle back and do a round two of this because there's a lot of uh, rabbit holes we could go down that we didn't. Yeah, I appreciate you, Justin. I appreciate your mentorship, your, your leadership, and I'm excited to see what comes of this. All right, coach. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and give contacts and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support.